DJ Simulationistas, sup, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome, DJ Simulationistas. Sup? <laughs> We're here with Janice Palaganis and Dan Raymer. What's up, Dan? Sup, Janice. Boston. How are you feeling? I'm feeling better. Um, you I thought you were going to say cold. Uh, oh, I am feeling cold. I can't <laughs> wait to get back to California. Um, I uh, uh, was sick, though, as you know, at the IMSH meeting. I, I know. You were referring to that, and I had a touch well, of Well, you did flu. have a cold. Yeah, I think it might so be the flu. You had the flu? Yeah, I think so. Because really? it was, yeah, because of fever. Well, and yeah, it was going around there. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people went home and had the flu. Yeah. Talking about IMSH, mm. I'm really interested in, in, you know, we've wrapped up IMSH, we're all back. What was your favorite part? It was odd. Uh, uh, the, my most favorite part was sort of an inspirational evening I spent at, at a dinner. And it was a dinner with a bunch of young medical residents from our own hospital. Massachusetts General Hospital. Yes, and they are the so-called SIM chiefs, who there's a cadre of residents there who Paul Courier, one of the intensivists there, has put together this program where they teach the interns via simulation. Mm-hmm. And so they get a lot of instruction on how to be a good instructor, and they get some stuff on how to run a simulator, and they run their own program that's quite extensive so that each intern of the 70 interns gets <laughs> 17 simulations during the course of a year. Um, so, so I think it's cool Paul put together this dinner. Yeah, really it was so fun. And the part that was fun was really odd, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, it was kind of an old man thing. Um, what? Which you'll tease me about, I'm sure. You just said they were young residents. Well, they were young and I was old. And somehow... So that's a young thing with an old... Yeah, maybe. Um, I they kind of got me talking about history and why things the way they were. Oh my gosh! What time did you guys get home? One a.m. Well, I you know I'm really (laughs) conscious of this because I know I can put people asleep with old war stories. I love I love when you talk about the history of sim. I love it. They were particularly enthusiastic, and so I think that was just really inspiring, and it was just so wonderful to think about, you know, that I've come kind of full circle, and I'm handing these things off that I care about to, to young people, and they were just like this perfect bunch who who's taken the enthusiasm about you know simulation and and experiential learning and they really get it and they put it to work 
Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were interested in its underpinnings and, you know, they got me talking about invention and what that's like and what it takes to invent things. They got me talking about the history of simulation, the ancient history of simulation and the modern history of simulation. And they seemed to uh, want to incorporate it into their educational pursuit, you know, that mm-hmm. they, they seem to want to be medical educators. You know, it's just so inspiring. What, what, uh, what inspires you? You're a relatively young person compared to me. I know that sometimes you think you're old, but you're not. Um, <laughs> I am old. I'm turning 40 this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's really old. <laughs> I suppose it. I suppose it's. I suppose it is. Roger Federer just won the Australian Open, and he's my age. <laughs> so, what inspires me? I have a mentor named Dan Raymer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh. No, no. I I think this is really interesting because it's like this cycle of inspiration. Like you inspire me, and then I teach, and then when I'm with students, their energy just like you're you're talking about inspires me in action you know I and I notice that particularly when when I have sort of a flat group I realize I have to really pick up my energy because a lot of what motivates me and inspires me to be a better teacher is that person that's nodding their head the person that's smiling the person whose eyes light up and if I don't see that, I get really worried about myself and I get insecure and, and I feel a loss of motivation to be my better self and be my better teacher. So I think it's like this cycle of inspiration. It's just, you know, the energy. Yeah, I wonder how you um, find those people and make sure they're in every class because <laughs> I agree with you that seeing people nodding their head and responding with thoughtful answers and being reflective, you know, is really is really what makes it worthwhile. And I agree with you in those situations where I've been in groups that are, you know, cold and reserved and there's not even one person like that in the group, mm-hmm. you, you feel like, oh, why do I really want to do this? Maybe it's part of being an educator that that you really seek that response and you put your energy into trying to make people comfortable Mm -hmm. and make people so that they feel like they can respond to you, they trust you. I'm not 100% sure that that's what makes the learning happen, but it sure does energize the process. Yeah. Well, I think learning is just interesting and from a longitudinal perspective of, you know, where people start off and in your example, simulation. And so I've been reading a lot, mainly to make me a better CrossFit coach. There's a book called Dog, Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. And it's about positive coaching. And it's mainly about animals, but then she takes it to... Actually, you would really enjoy it because she talks about your tennis game and making your tennis game better and, uh-huh. and positive reinforcement. So anyway, what she does talk about are points of reinforcements, different types of reinforcements. And one of the things that she talks about is almost like prior to action reinforcement, and it's reaping the energy from 
when someone first enters an interest, that if you give reinforcements at that point, that you launch an even steeper trajectory for their success. And I think the fact that you were with these sim chiefs at a time when they are just starting to become leaders in simulation and giving them the information that you did, that inspiration is this positive reinforcement that if they didn't have that, their trajectory would be you know, less steep, still probably steep, but just that impact that you had in one night is amazing. Uh-huh. It's inspiring. Uh-huh. I, I guess you do that on a large scale and a small scale, so that person that hints at a nod when you first start in teacher mode you're suddenly paying more attention to them or asking them a question or something like that is maybe that positive reinforcement. You know, I'm going to pay attention to you because you're giving me the signal that you're interested or open to learning. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, I just wonder how we, uh, you know, that's such a natural thing. So the nonverbals. Yeah. I wonder if we could train ourselves better to be consistently positive about those nonverbals and to pick up on them and pay attention to that person's cues, like training a puppy. Uh, (laughs) Well, this is, so there's this guy named Goldsmith, and he wrote this article called, I think it's Teach With Your Mouth Shut. He basically refuses to teach and uses all of these nonverbals, and he calls it feed forward, not feedback. You know, there's power, and we talk about this all the time, there's power of feedback, and people need feedback to improve. And and so he talks more about giving cues, positive reinforcement cues that allow them to move forward uh-huh. versus reflecting on past, you know, negative performance. Uh-huh. This is so funny because, as you know, my daughter uh, got a puppy, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm the I'm the grandfather of this puppy, and she uh, promptly put me in charge of the puppy for quite a while, and uh, we went to dog training puppy school, and I was surprised that it was all positive reinforcement. There's no saying no to the dog. Dogs don't understand yes and no. They understand positive reinforcement. And in the case of a dog, it's all done with, you know, chewies and little pieces of hot dog and things like that. But but that whole concept of when 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 you see a good behavior, you reinforce it with, with something positive. Mm-hmm. The fascinating thing was that the instructor was telling us about her dog, mm-hmm. and it was quite a while before she realized that her dog, her personal dog, was deaf. <laughs> and... And it was all nonverbal. It was all nonverbal. That's, that's and so they teach you to use hand signals. Mm-hmm. You don't have to say anything. First of all, how do you not know that your dog's deaf? Like that's I when guess my it, dog went deaf. Like I totally. But I think the dog started off deaf. You know, when she got the dog, okay, it was anyway. already deaf. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But she described this and said that fortunately she had learned to always combine a hand signal, like a nonverbal, yeah, with cool. the verbal statement. And, and you do it that with works. babies, too. Oh, it works. Yeah. 
with the dog, all I have to do is move my arm and the dog actually responds. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, so I so can we stay on this for a minute? Because I've had trouble with positive coaching and positive teaching because mainly because of my kids. I'm not sure how much I support it, which is why I've started reading more on it. Meaning I think sometimes, at least in my kids' school, they are no longer ranked. They have no idea where they stand on the curve of knowledge and skills and performance. Every child is pretty much receiving positive enforcement, reinforcement from their teachers. They, I think they all think they're really great, which is a new kind of style of parenting. And I do see it with a lot of my friends and their kids. And I guess my worry is once they get to college and they realize they're not as great as they think they are, I do worry about that. So I've started reading more about positive reinforcements and the effects of that. And sure enough, there's a lot of articles out there that show that it's you know much more effective in terms of learning than negative reinforcements and some of the older styles of teaching. What I am starting to appreciate from the readings and from my personal practice in CrossFit coaching is you have like a second while somebody's doing a movement in CrossFit to tell them, to give them some coaching tips. And for us, it's all about form. And what I find really interesting is it's not the positive reinforcement like, oh, you look great or you're doing great. It's more the, instead of saying you're not going low enough, you say, put your hips lower than your knees. So it's just a positive twist but you're not saying you're not doing this. You're just saying do this. So it's almost like a feed forward versus feedback. And so I found that really powerful in my coaching. And so I don't know if we just have a misunderstanding of what positive reinforcement is. I think in healthcare, we have had a tendency to focus on the negative and give negative feedback. And I have to say that if I kind of look back at my debriefing journey, that I've moved very much towards really spending a lot more time on positive feedback and trying to find ways of getting people to keep doing the things that they're doing right mm-hmm. and using that to encourage them to do it more. Mm-hmm. And so it's exactly what you're talking about in your physical coaching. I think that we need to do as much of that as possible in debriefing and that finding the things that were done well and talking about them and encouraging people to keep doing the right thing. I think that works. Yeah. And particularly in debriefing and psychological safety, giving positive feedback has a role and it's in every every single book and guide that I've read in terms of giving feedback in difficult conversations, it's always a step to give some sort of positive, substantial, you know, with observed data, positive feedback, because they feel like it disarms the individual to be able to take more hard-hitting feedback. So it's like a progression in the psychological safety of that conversation. Yet, we haven't seen research and debriefing. And you know, and I know we say that if it's a, you know, if the negative performance was a safety issue in terms of patient safety, you have an obligation of responsibility as an educator to start with that because you don't want to send the wrong mes- message that it wasn't as important as whatever you started off with. And, and I truly still believe that. Yet I really want someone, one of our listeners maybe, to just take this and study it. 
Yeah, I think it would be great to study. I'm not sure I agree you need to start with the thing that's dangerous, but you have to make sure you get it in. And I think your point is exactly right, that the hard thing about this is to really provide the data on what was so positive. And I think that's hard for people. It's much easier to say, to give hollow praise than it is to actually give some substance to the positive feedback that they're giving. Awesome. Well, thanks for inspiring me, Dan. (laughs) Well, thanks for counter-inspiring me because you seem so enthused about um, (laughs) about inspiration. (laughs) All right. right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. DJ Simulationistas, what's up? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.